All right, my friends, good morning, good morning, good morning. Please have a seat. Um, hey, there's a bunch of stuff that we're going to cover today, so we're going to get right into it, right? So um, for those of you who don't know, hopefully most of you know, if you're new to the tapestry, welcome. We're so glad to worship with you. Um, but we're doing this sermon series on Luke, and the name of our sermon series is A Call to follow, a call to follow. And we're calling our sermon series a call to follow because in Luke, when we read Luke and look through its pages, Luke, it just gives us this powerful picture of not only who Jesus is, but what it means to follow him. In other words, the gospel of Luke gives us this very powerful picture of discipleship. And today, all we're going to do is we're going to just try to continue to furnish our picture of discipleship. We're going to continue to talk about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And um, the script, through the scripture we're going to look at today, we're going to talk about an upside-down Messiah. Then we're going to talk about upside-down priorities. And finally, we'll talk about an upside-down identity. Upside-down Messiah, upside-down priorities, and upside-down identity. And so the passage that we're looking at today is this is during Jesus' ministry. He has finished calling his disciples um, to himself. And um, he's kind of going on out there and doing his thing. And this is where we find ourselves, uh, starting at chapter 9, uh, verse 21. And it reads like this. Oh, wait, no, the slide before this. Yes. Forward. Okay, verse 18. So, it reads like this. Once, when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? You know, in Luke, often, 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 before anything happens, you see Jesus going away. Right? He's, he goes away to solitude, he goes away to pray, and then he comes back. You know, he has this big full life of ministry, but he's always withdrawing. He's always finding time to pray, always finding time to be with the Lord, right? And I, I think that's such a good reminder for us that as we engage in life, as we engage in ministry, are we um, living out of that same lifestyle, right? Are we nurturing this full, vibrant prayer life with the Lord? Are we sending time in solitude like Jesus did? So, but here in our passage, Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him and he asked them, he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others um, that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. And then Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. So already at this point, Jesus is predicting. Jesus is letting his disciples know of that he will be crucified, that he will be raised again from the dead. Like he's talking about his mission here. And then in verse 23, it reads, then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. 
This is the word of the Lord. All right. Don't know if you're really thankful about that. <laughs> but so, for those of you who don't know, and if you do know, then I'm counting on you. But for here, part of our liturgy is when we read the scripture, we go, this is the word of the Lord. And the response of the congregation is, thank you, God. Thanks be to God. Oh, yeah, someone was ready. Thank you, Becca. You're good. So, but it's to be thankful for the word that we're receiving today. So this is the word of the Lord. Love it. Okay, so let's start chewing through our text, all right? So um, where are we at at this point in our passage? At this point in our passage, Jesus is um, really starting to raise some eyebrows here, right? And um, all the things that he's been doing, it's, got, it's started to um, lead some people to ask questions about his identity. They're asking, like, who is this guy that forgives sin? Who is this guy that heals the blind and the lame? Who is this guy who is stirring so much attention, right? And then all of this builds up to a point where Jesus, he's alone with his disciples. And in the middle of praying, he gets up and he goes, who do the crowds say I am? Right? What's the word on the street about me? And then the disciples, they respond. They're like, well, some say you're Moses, some say you're Elijah, some say you're one of the other great prophets, come back to life, right? And then Jesus asks his disciples, but who do you say I am? And Peter, even though Peter doesn't fully understand the significance of what he's saying, in this moment of clarity, Peter says, you are God's Messiah. Now, church, for the Israelite people, the Messiah was this long-anticipated savior of the world who would one day come and free God's people from their enemies and finally bring God's rule and reign in the world. What a mouthful. Let me say that again. The Messiah was, God's law, was a long-anticipated savior of the world who would one day come and free God's people from their enemies and finally bring God's rule and reign to the world. And so, church, even by this definition, hopefully you see that the Messiah was far greater than Moses. The Messiah was even greater than Elijah. The Messiah was someone who was to be even greater than all of the prophets. The Messiah was going to finally bring to light what even the greatest of prophets could only talk about, could only point to dimly. And because of all this, there was so much anticipation for the arrival of the Messiah, right? And the clear expectation of the people waiting to receive him was that the Messiah was going to come in glory and power and majesty. But then, right after Peter identifies Jesus as the Messiah, Jesus basically says, but keep it down. Right? It's almost like Jesus was saying, let's not derail what I came to do here, Peter, because I did not come to get the red carpet treatment. I did not come to be embraced by everybody, but instead I came to suffer, I came to be rejected, and I came to be killed. And you know, church, the literal translation of Messiah in this passage, the literal words that Peter is calling Jesus is the Christ of God. Peter is calling Jesus the Christ of God. And I think this 
title of Christ further fills out Jesus' messianic identity for us because the word Christ means to be anointed. And in the Old Testament, anointing was only reserved for three different types of people. Anointing was only reserved for prophets, for priests, and for kings. And as the Messiah, Jesus came to be all three. He came to be the ultimate prophet, the ultimate priest, and the ultimate king. Not through power and not through glory, but through suffering and rejection and death. Jesus was the ultimate prophet who best taught us about who God was and what his ways were all about because Jesus was God. But in the end, Jesus was rejected by many and sentenced to die. Jesus was the ultimate priest who stood in our place before God and he provided atonement for our sins, but he provided it through his own suffering on the cross. And Jesus was the ultimate king who defeated the enemies of sin and death, but through his own death and resurrection. And even now, Jesus, the ultimate king, is sitting on the throne and bringing the full reality of his rule and reign to earth today. Jesus was the ultimate prophet, the ultimate priest, the ultimate king. He was the Messiah, but he did not come through power and glory. He came through suffering, rejection, and death. And you know, to the Israelite imagination, this idea of a suffering Messiah, it was a complete and total categorical impossibility impossibility. (laughs) The idea of a suffering Messiah was like the idea of a married bachelor. The idea of a suffering Messiah to the Israelite people was like the idea of dry rain or a squared circle or the Canucks with a championship. It was just, you know, uh, cheap shot, cheap shot. Okay, but anyways, I'm from Toronto, born and raised. Not like the Leafs are any better. Okay, so. uh, But, you know, for the Israelite people, the Messiah, this idea of a suffering Messiah was a complete categorical uh, impossibility. I don't know why I'm having so much trouble saying that word today. Uh, But, you know, church, that makes me think that whenever we read the biblical text, we should be more generous when we read it, especially when when we read about the disciples and we read about the Pharisees. Right? Because I think sometimes when we first read the Gospels, our first impression of the disciples can be like they're these kind of like dull and bumbling people who are always struggling to understand what Jesus is doing and teaching and talking about, right? And our first impressions of the Pharisees can often be like they're these really starched up, uptight people who are upset at Jesus, constantly upset at him because Jesus keeps on breaking their little rules. But in a way... Both the Pharisees and the disciples are wrestling with the categorical anomaly of Christ. They are both trying to come to terms with who Jesus said he was, what he did, what he preached, how he lived. In Christ, they were both facing this complete and total paradigm shift of reality. And so in their belief of Christ, the disciples were bound to struggle to understand him and follow him. And in their rejection of Christ, the Pharisees were bound to find offense in him. But this is the thing with Jesus. He pushes you, he encourages you constantly to make a decision about who he is. 
He is constantly asking us the question, but who do you say I am? And we all need to come to terms with the unique revelation of Jesus Christ. Like the disciples or the Pharisees, we either need to accept him as Lord and Savior or reject him as a liar or deluded or both. Because when you look at what Jesus claimed and when you look at how Jesus lived, Jesus just doesn't really leave space for anything else. He asks us constantly through the Gospel of Luke, through how he preaches, what he says, what he claims, will you accept me or will you reject me? Will you accept me or will you reject me? And then we read in verse 23 of our passage, Jesus tells us what accepting him looks like. And what does Jesus say? He says, whoever wants to be my disciples, they must deny themselves and take up their crosses and follow me. That's what Jesus says following him is all about. Denying themselves, taking up their crosses daily and follow me. You know, in the passage, Jesus tells us to take up the cross daily. I just can't, like, shake that. It's just there, like, daily, 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 and follow him. And the way follow is written in the original Greek, in this passage, it implies a continuous action. So Jesus, in this passage, is telling us to continually follow him, to continually, moment to moment, follow after him. And so, church, I think this passage kind of reminds us of two things, at least two things. It reminds me of two things anyways. And the first thing that it reminds me of is that the way of Christ is also the way of the cross. It is indivisible, right? It's the way, and the way of the cross is the way of humility. It's the way of self-sacrifice. It's the way of service to God. It's the way of service to others. And discipleship is all about putting Christ and his ways above our own ways, even though the way of Christ comes with a cross for us to bear. I think that's the first reminder of this verse. And the second reminder I see in this verse is that having these upside-down priorities, right, and that's the second thing we're talking about, upside-down priorities, but having these upside-down priorities of putting Christ's ways before our own ways is not just something we believe in our heads. Having these upside-down priorities is not just something that we affirm with our lips, but these upside-down priorities are something we're constantly called to take up. We're constantly called to live out of. We're constantly called to act on. This passage for us, I think, is a reminder that we are called to acknowledge the whole of Christ with the whole of who we are. We are to acknowledge the whole of Christ with the whole of who we are. You know, church, I think that that's such a very important word for us because so often we want to divide Christ. We want Christ without the cross, right? Or we want to follow Christ, but we don't want to follow Christ with the whole of our lives. But part of denying ourselves and taking up our cross daily and following after him is about acknowledging the whole of Christ, the indivisibility of Christ with the whole of our lives, and so let me give you a picture of what that looks like. You know, I think to acknowledge the indivisibility of Christ with the whole of our lives is to accept Jesus as both Savior and Lord. To see Jesus as someone who loves us, yes, and who died for our sins, but also as someone who we serve and who we obey and who we follow as Lord. You know, to accept the indivisibility of Christ with the whole of our lives is to accept the power of Christ and the mission of Christ. 
is to accept that by the power of the Spirit, yes, Jesus gives us his comfort. Jesus gives us his power. Jesus gives us his peace. And he empowers us so that we might grow in the cross-shaped character of Christ. So that we might go and make disciples that make disciples that make disciples that make disciples. You know, to acknowledge the indivisibility of Christ with our whole lives is to accept his easy words and his hard words. It's to accept his words that are comforting to us and his words that are convicting to us. It's to live according to the totality of what he said and taught and not just the verses that make us feel good or the verses that we agree with or the verses that look good on coffee mugs. You know, church, so often we can want the part of Christ that changes our lives, but not the part of Christ that calls us to change our lifestyle. But to the call to discipleship is about seeking to see and know more and more the fullness of Christ so that we might bring that to bear on our own lives and live that out with the whole of our lives. And so the call of discipleship, yes, it's about believing that Jesus died and he rose for our sins. And yes, it's about believing, you know, like his word, all of those things. But it's also about things like developing a deep life of prayer like we were reading about. It's about loving our neighbor. It's about battling our idols of wealth and comfort and fame and approval constantly day by day so that we might actually grow to know Christ more through it and become more like him. And church, of course, of course, when we actually try to follow Jesus in this way, when we actually try to acknowledge Jesus in this way and be his disciple in this way, of course, we'll bumble around like Jesus' original disciples did. Of course, there will be times where we fail him. There will be times where we forget him. There will be times where we're blind to what Jesus is doing. And there may even be times that we may deny him with our lives. But I love this this passage because I think it points to the fact that every day, every single day is a new invitation to take up the cross. Every day there are new mercies and there are new graces waiting for us as we seek to follow him so that we might be transformed into the image of Christ and find our lives in him. Every day is a new opportunity to follow hard after Jesus. And this gets to the last thing that we're going to talk about today because the passage talks about finding our life in Christ, right? That we follow after Christ to find our life in Christ. And so the last thing that we're talking about today is upside-down identity, right? To have this upside-down identity. And you know, in verse 23 of our passage, when Jesus says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake will save it, Um, Jesus here is using a very specific word for life. You know, Tim Keller, he's very keen to note that the word used for life in this passage is the word suke. Now, in the Greek, there are a bunch of different words for life. There is the word bios, and bios is where we get the word biology from. And bios means our physical life, like our just living, breathing lungs, like heart kind of life. And then in the Greek, there's the word zoe, and that also means life, but it means kind of like our thriving life, like our life at its best, like when we're just fully alive, that's zoe life. But in this passage, the word for life is not bios or zoe. 
The word for life in this passage is the word suke. And suke means your inner life. Suke is all about your inner sense of identity. Suke is where we get the word psychology from. And so, church, part of what Jesus is saying in this passage is that when we deny ourselves, when we take up our cross, when we follow after Christ, that is when we will fully know ourselves. That is when we will fully be secure with who we are. You know, every Thursday we talk about the passage that we're going to study for Sunday, right? And so this Thursday we're talking about this particular passage, and Jeff was quick to point out that in Matthew's account of this very passage, right after Peter acknowledges Jesus, right after Peter names Jesus as the Messiah, that is when Jesus comes around and names Peter. Before this moment, in the Gospel of Matthew, Peter's name was Simon. But the moment Simon called Jesus the Messiah, that's when Jesus named Simon Peter. And church, that is the basis of Christian identity. When we acknowledge Jesus for who he is, he then tells us who we are. When we identify Jesus as Messiah, we are given this new identity in him. And you know, church, this is completely different than the way identity is typically formed in the West or the East, right? And, and we only have a, a little bit of time, so I have to be general about this. But in the West or the East, it's two completely different ways of forming identity. And typically, for example, in the East, if your identity comes from looking outward, looking around you, if you're from the East, your identity comes from um, looking at others and looking at the community around you. You know yourself by interconnecting yourself with the social expectations and the social norms of the larger community around you. And so, if someone were to ask you who you were, and you're living in China or you're living someplace like that, if someone were to ask you who you were, you're more than likely to talk about your community. You would say something like, oh, well, I'm a father or I'm a daughter, or I'm a citizen. And there would be this shared expectation of what those roles were, of what being a father was all about, or a citizen, or what have you. That's in the East. But typically in the West, your identity does not come from looking outward. Instead, your identity comes from looking inward, right? Here in the West, your identity is something you discover, your identity is something you create for yourself. You self-identify. And the way you self-identify is often through detaching yourself from the larger communities around you, right? You forgo what other people think. You forgo what other people say about you. We, you forgo what other people expect of you because what's most important is that you are true to yourself. What's most important is that you do you. Now, the cultural psychologists, Hazel Rose Marcus and Elena Corner, they call these two different types of identity formation the independent self and the interdependent self. But I hope we can see that the Christian way to identity is completely different than this. Because the Christian way of identity is not to look inward, and it's not to look outward, but it's to look upward. 
right, is to look upward. It's to look to Christ. It's to acknowledge Christ so that he could name you, so that he could give you an identity. It's to allow Christ to reveal to us who we were made to be. And church, if you form your identity in this way, if you form your identity around Christ, then, I mean, it's so incredibly freeing. It's so incredibly liberating. Because, look, if you're trying to form your identity by looking inwardly, right, like the Western way, if you're trying to form your identity by looking inwardly, you need to come up with a dream. You need to decide who you are. And then you have to go and become it. That's so heavy. That's such a weight. And look, if you're trying to form your identity by looking outwardly, then suddenly you have the weight of being the perfect son. You have to be the perfect husband. You have to be the perfect wife or the perfect employee or the perfect citizen. In the East, you gain your identity by living up to other people's expectations of you. In the West, you gain your identity by living up to your own expectations of yourself. And both are crushing. But in Christ, you receive an identity. In Christ, an identity is given to you when we acknowledge Christ, when we see him for who he is, when we call him the Messiah. What will you hear? You will hear a true prophet, the true prophet, come and tell you, I know you. I know everything about you, and I want you to be my disciple. When we acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah, we will hear the true priest come and say to us, I love you so much. I value you so much. I'm willing to die for you. I'm willing to sacrifice for you. When we acknowledge Jesus as the true king, we will hear him say, I am with you always. And I am working out all things with my power for your good. And church, that sense of identity, when we look to Christ and we hear Christ tell us who we are, that sense of identity, it is so very stable, isn't it? It's just so grounded. Because look, if you're looking inwardly for your stability of self, if you're looking inwardly in the Western way, what you'll find is you contradict yourself all the time. So often, you don't know what you want, you don't know who you are, and when you do, you'll find that it just keeps changing on you. And if you're looking outwardly in the Eastern way for that stability of identity, you'll find that there are people with all sorts of different expectations and opinions of you, all, sort, all the time challenging you for who you are and how well you are living up to who they say you should, how you say you should live. But in Christ, your identity is not rooted in what other people say about you or what you say about you. Your identity is rooted in what Christ says about you. Your identity is rooted in who Christ is and what Christ did for you. You know, church, the only, I mean, I've been racking my brain, like, and, and the only example that I, I could think of that, can, that came even close to this picture of identity formation was um, of my youngest daughter, Carissa. Okay, so my youngest daughter, she just turned one year old, like, last week. Right? And so she is just right now starting to kind of grow a sense of self. And so for Carissa, she has no idea what it means to follow your heart. And she also has no clue what it means to bring shame to your family or honor your family. She has no clue of any of that stuff. And so do you know where she's getting her sense of identity from right now? Do you know where she's getting her sense of self right now? She's getting it by looking up, 
She's looking up at mom. She's looking up at dad. And we give her this name. And by loving this kid, our hope is that she knows that she's worth loving. Right? By constantly valuing her and caring for her, our hope is that she knows that she has value and she is worth being cared for. That she's beginning to form this identity, this idea of her worth through her mom and her dad. And this is all before she could do anything to contribute to our family. It's not like she's like doing anything or saying anything. And of course, our hope is that she will one day grow to love and serve her family like her family loves, grows to um, love and serve her because there's so much joy in that. But Carissa's identity is not rooted in what she does. And it's not rooted in what she doesn't do. It's rooted in something so much more fundamental, so much more deeper than all that. And look, church, I am nothing special. Like, honestly, I am just a regular old dad. Like, I'm a regular dad. But if right now I can give Carissa that kind of security of identity, if right now I can give her that ability to just be confident in the world that she's in. I can give her that identity that allows her to cry out or allows her to feel safe where she is. What kind of stability, what kind of confidence do you think Christ can give you to navigate through this life when you trust him and you acknowledge him? You know, church, the minute that we acknowledge Christ, it is so transformational because the more we acknowledge him, the more we'll want to follow him, the more we'll see his beauty and the glo- his glory, and the more we'll want to grow in Christ's cross-shaped character. Because church, we, we pursue what we love. We grow to resemble what we love. We sacrifice for what we love. Isn't that true? And that's what Christ did for you. He came down. He took on flesh. He died for you. He identified with you so that you could find your identity in him and have an identity that is so rooted that you could have it forever. Church, all the other types of identity formation in this world, in the end, you will lose yourself. But in Christ, your identity is so secure, you will have it for him for eternity. So let's hold on to that identity. Let's hold fast to that and live out of that identity this week. Let's pray. So Heavenly Lord and Gracious Father, we just, we just thank you. We just thank you for, for loving us, for coming down, for taking on flesh. Um, and Lord, we just pray that Um, by the power of your spirit, you know, when we go out and live in the world, that you can turn down the noise for us, the noise that says our worth is in what we do, our identity is in um, what we accomplish, our identity is in how many letters are behind our name, our identity is in what we drive or, or how much money we have or the type of clothes that we wear, that you can just, by the power of your spirit, just turn all of that down in moments of solitude, in moments of peace, um, when we are able to get away, or even in the, in the middle of the busy and the hustle and bustle, that, um, 
that dial can turn all the way down so that we can be left with the knowledge, the truth of knowing that before all of those things, we are loved, we are cherished, we are adored by you, and that we are your um, sons and daughters, we're sons and daughters of the Lord, and that we are your brothers and sisters. Lord, I just pray that, you know, we might grow to identify in that way and live out of that identity that we can be, you know, in the biblical text, it says we're beautifully, we're, we're, we're wonderfully made, that you know all of the hairs on our heads, that you created us so uniquely to reflect on the character of Christ. And I just pray that, you know, as we go out in the world, that we can acknowledge you more and more so you can transform us more and more uniquely into your image so that we can know our true selves, so that we can become more and more comfortable with who we are, knowing that before anything, we are yours. All of these things we pray in your son's most beautiful name. Amen.